0: I'm Superwheel Publishing. This is Blunt Dissection. I'm Dave Nickel. Today's show is the 2018 end-of-year review. Now, normally, it's my job to interview and tease apart the life of interesting people from around the world of veterinary medicine. But in the end-of-year review episode, I take the time to reflect on my favorite clips from my guests, and this year, I decided to wrap the clips up in a theme, which is fear. Now, fear, or false evidence appearing real, stalks many of us in veterinary medicine and shows up to wreck our days in many and various ways. If we let it, it influences us students, it can lead to burnout, it prevents prevent us from making good decisions It can change our lives for the better, and it can harm the welfare of our patients. So in this episode, I decided to put fear under the microscope, and each guest shares their take on fear from a unique perspective, offering their advice on how to be more fearless. Now before we jump into the episode I just wanted to drop a very quick word from today's show sponsor which is my brand new Vetex Leaders Training Group. If you're a manager or owner of a veterinary practice and your people are your biggest problem, then Vetex Leaders is designed for you. As a member of Vetex Leaders, you'll learn how to build a high-performing team based on three growth areas. Firstly, you're going to learn how to recruit the right people. Secondly, you'll learn how to performance manage your people effectively. So the team reaches new heights. And thirdly, you'll take your leadership skills to the very next level. This is a unique deep dive into the world of performance and I will be your personal mentor throughout. There will be teaching, mentoring, and access to all of the templates and frameworks I've used to run successful veterinary hospitals around the world over the last decade. So if you think that sort of training would help improve your game as a leader and reduce your stress, then go to Vetexleaders.com to learn more. And if you use the promo code podcast, then you will get 10% off. Okay, back to the episode. We cover everything from farms to fast jets and much in between. And While this episode may be a bit more staccato than you're used to, it also provides insight and solutions to the many-faced beast that fear can manifest as. So without further ado, it is my great pleasure to give you my dissection on the topic of fear, which I hope helps you slay one or two of your demons. A better Christmas gift I cannot offer. Enjoy. In part one of this series, we have Dr. Peter Weinstein. Peter is co-author of The E-Myth Veterinarian uh, with his fellow author and business legend and guru Michael Gerber. Now, Peter talks about how he managed setbacks early in his career and what a fear of failure was driving him and, and how he ended up burning out. But what he realized was there was an antidote in the form of education and also modeling his life on more successful people. This made a huge difference for him and indeed took him a long way down the road to the success he's enjoyed. Let's hear from Peter.
1: If I were to make a suggestion to my colleagues is don't try to be everything to everybody. Yep. Hire your shortfalls, hire your weaknesses Surround yourself with a strong team and do what you do best, but don't try to do everything. Because when you try to do everything, that's when you make mistakes. Right. So that's a a global answer. So when I faced challenges before, I did the classic veterinarian, keep your head down, keep moving forward. It's kind of like the the football running back. This is American football, not the one that doesn't wear pads, (laughs) Um, where you just get behind your line and just keep pushing forward. And that's what I... Did that's I persevered after when I didn't get into veterinary school. I looked for the answers that I needed. I persevered when I my first job didn't work. I found some new answers. And I had the classic entrepreneurial seizure. As David knows and and you will find out, I co-authored a book called The E-Myth Veterinarian with Michael Gerber, whose book, The E-Myth and the E-Myth Revisited, talk about the classic entrepreneurial seizure which is where a veterinarian, in this case myself, or a technician who's doing a great job in a practice, doing the work of being a veterinarian, then decides that, oh, I'm tired of working for somebody else and making somebody else successful. I can go do it by myself. Right. And for those of you who are listening, many of you who are listening, you have had that entrepreneurial seizure. So I was driving around in South Orange County with my my boss at that point in time, and there was some... Great growth going on, new homes being built, new shopping centers being built. And I said, you know, it's time. I had my epiphany or my seizure, and we found a location, 50,000 new homes being built, built out of veterinary hospital. And how hard could it be? You know, I was good with the staff. I was good with the clients. I could do basic surgery. I knew how to be be a diagnostician. I had no problems with client communication. How hard could it be, David? David. Right. What could possibly go wrong? What could possibly go wrong? Well, recessions hit and economic challenges hit and you all of a sudden realize that there are taxes to be paid and that there's things that you can't say to your human resource team. By the way, I am not related to Harvey Weinstein. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for the clarification. So you learn by your mistakes and inventory and surgeries that you really shouldn't dive into and – All of these different things. And about three years into ownership, two years into ownership, I was burned out. I was ready to put the hospital up for sale. In fact, I actually had people looking at it. And then I went back and I had, I did what, again, I talked about earlier. I put my nose down and plowed through. But I went back to school this time. Right. And I went back and started working on an MBA. Okay. So, and using your words,
0: you found that the business of being a vet was harder than the You know, the medicine, the medical section of being a vet. So that's an interesting place to go. So what did you learn in the MBA? What were the main things or the most important things you learned? What lessons have served you well from that? And how did that then impact itself and manifest itself, like, in the practice made real? So it wasn't just academic. There was something real happening.
1: The first thing I did in the MBA was listen to the other people in the room. Because they were from other industries. They were from Verizon. They were from hospitals. They were from restaurants. They were from all sorts of different uh, industries. And learned that veterinary medicine is no different than any other business. It's just, if you don't know how other businesses do it, you only do it one way. And what most veterinarians do, and I did the same thing, is I looked at the models of people who I had worked for right, from the time I was 15 to now the time that I was three years out of school and just use those models. And then you start to read about Harley Davidson. You start to read about Nordstrom's. You start to read about other business models that are successful. And here's learning point number two. Veterinarians don't model against other veterinary practices, model against other successful businesses because veterinary medicine is no different than Starbucks. It's just that we deliver a service and we just need to learn how to deliver it in a much more effective, efficient, and consistent fashion. So the learning points from the MBA were, I now understood what a PL was and an income statement and a balance sheet. And he knew what the laws were now that I had to work underneath. And I understood logistics and I understood team building and leadership and all of those things that veterinary schools don't have the time to provide. And I also learned to stop, sorry for all of David's sponsors, I'm going to say something that's going to make his sponsors unhappy. I stopped reading veterinary publications except to skim them, but I started reading Entrepreneur, Inc. Magazine, Harvard Business Review, Forbes, Fortune, and I started listening to experts in the field of business, Ken Blanchard, Tom Peters, and similar so that I could learn what made other businesses more successful and I could extrapolate those into my practice. And what I did subsequently is all of my presentations, all of my papers were based upon applying what I learned in school into my practice. In
0: February, I spoke to Dr. Gerardo Poli. Many of you know him as the author of the Mini Vet Guide, an emergency veterinarian from Australia. And we talked very much about failure again. Uh, And what was interesting was to get the perspective. So firstly, we had Peter talking about how a fear of failure spurred him through a phase of burnout. Gerardo talks about how to reframe failure within his team so that his young team could develop quickly, but safely and the tools that he uses to do that.
2: So as part of trying to build resilience in our veterinarians, the One thing I think I spend quite a lot of time, and Alex, business partner, partner, also spends quite a lot of time doing this as well, but one thing I think I spend quite a lot of time with or doing is putting things into perspective. So, fine, they they might fail at something, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're a failure. They might have a bad day at work, but it's not a bad month and a bad year, you know, or they might get a complaint letter but then they forget that they saw 150 patients that month. You know, you put things into perspective, one complaint, it'd be great to never have any complaints, right? But I think bringing things back to reality and not dramatizing things. When you add drama to it, then all of a sudden, things start to escalate. And then you start to fear things, you start to play things back through your mind you start to dread things those situations i can't do that ever again Jordan. i can't do that ever again that's the kind of time when i don't know i call it a, a shake up or a slap something that's kind of like hey we'll, we'll, we'll sit, stop 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 So a pattern you know? interrupt almost at that point just to go yeah that's, that's a story so there
0: is a truth here but now there's a story that's maybe not a truth
2: yeah what is the story what is the facts let's go back to the facts and even then, sometimes the facts that they think are facts aren't facts. So that's anyway a whole different you – know, <laughs> <laughs> you can go forever there. But the other thing is what I try to emphasize is that we've all been there. We've all failed at something. Right? Everyone fails at something. We all aim for success, but we are okay with failure. And or at least you've got to be okay with failure. It's not like as if you just brush things off and like, oh, I've got fail every, every now and then and It's okay. You have to learn. You have to be able to process what's happened. What can I take from that? How can I be better? So one of the things that my interns and I sometimes say to each other, and we say this to each other because you know I'm still learning as well, is that look, you just got to be better. And that's I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but sometimes it's like on the phone, I'm like, okay, you, you can do this, and then they will say to themselves, okay, I just got to be better. So it doesn't mean that actually they're failing; it just means that they're in a process of learning, and that actually there is continual improvement. And then they'll tell me, "You just do be better," and I'll be like, "Fine, yeah, I'll take that." You know, so, so I'm how, learning as well. How do we help people in all facets of the profession? Since this is a
0: global thing, we're clearly talking about a principle that applies across the board here, not just to ECC work. How do we help people fail safely? And should we stop using the word f- "fail"? Because maybe the word setback or learning experience might be more appropriate. But how, from your perspective, would you think we can help people fail more safely? You know, keep talking. Like, what ways? Because you sound like you've got some really interesting thoughts on this. What other ways do you help to do that? And maybe again, you know, we talked about ultrasound. And by the way, I love your posts on Instagram where you sort of document out with the stories. You know, you step out a case. It's really interesting, like the Doberman that you had on there with DCM like for students like that would te- as a student i would learn more from that than from a textbook ever you know just as a very visual learner i thought that was awesome just as a sidebar but using maybe ultrasound as as that's one of your interest areas how do you help somebody acquire the skills and embrace those moments of growth of learning of failing uh, in a safe way that that they keep at it
2: yeah so i suppose the environment that we try to create in our hospital is an environment of learning. So it's stressful enough as it is, you know, they, you don't know, there's no set appointments, anything can walk through the door. Sometimes we don't even get notifications or even a phone call. All of a sudden we hear the doorbell that's hit by a car dog. So everyone feels out of their depth and I feel out of my depth sometimes on shifts as well and, and sometimes multiple times on shifts. So we are always, I suppose the environment in our hospital is, an environment of learning and continuing professional development and all of our veterinarians at some stage will go through a master's or go through their memberships and emergency critical care. Some are actually training for the fellowships. So that environment of learning is really helpful because it almost sets up the premise that it's not necessarily failure, but when you miss something, it's a process of learning. So we never look at it and go, are oh, you failed to find that? left adrenal or something like that or you failed to see that that mass in the liver well you know let's put things to perspective you know this is your third ultrasound okay so we we create the environment where someone always checks quite often actually in the middle of night i'll get phone calls and i'll facetime or facebook messenger ultrasounds so like video conference and ultrasound and what we try to emphasize is a systematic approach and a systematic approach applies to not just ultrasound, but also to physical examinations, to x-ray interpretation, systematic approach, step-by-step process, where if you can, as a new graduate, as a new veterinarian to ultrasound, if you can look at everything and make sure you see everything, then what happens is you won't miss things from a lack of knowledge. You'll miss things because you haven't looked. So if you have a systematic approach, you'll we'll see something. So very rarely do I feel that our clinicians feel like they're failing because they don't have the skill set to do something. They want to get better, but we create the environment that they appreciate that it takes time to get better. So there's a growth mindset there, trying to see that things are, these challenges that we see now in our hospital are challenges for growth and learning as opposed to challenges that are intimidating and, how would you say, make you want to crawl up into a ball and try and corner. In March,
0: I spoke to squadron leader Tim Davis, who explained his approach to failure in not just a high-performance team, but a high-performance team where the stakes really can't get higher. Flying fast jets is a dangerous game, and if you get things wrong, then you don't just kill people on the ground, civilians, you kill your teammates. Things couldn't get much worse than that. So... Why is it Tim creates a culture where he embraces deliberately failing? And how does he do this within the culture, the general wider culture of safety within aviation?
3: Let's hear from Tim. I think the, the key with failure is to understand that it happens to everyone. And if you know someone that doesn't happen to you, they're lying to you. It's just a fact or they're not growing as an individual. So you can stagnate if you want to and not fail. And you'll be there as an average vet doing vaccinations all day, as you say. By staying in your comfort zone. Absolutely. Yeah, of course yep. it is. If you want to develop and grow and be something and be somebody more important and contribute of someone of value, help other people out and be a, a humble human being with a, with a great life and, and be very content with yourself, which is what we all want, of course. We want to be content in our lives. Then you will have to embrace that stretch. And with that stretch will come failure. Yep. But fail, if we're going to put it as an acronym, is first attempt at learning. First attempt in learning. So let's be honest what failure is. Failure is a method of growth. I mean, I fail a lot. And I do it intentionally sometimes. And with our students, what I used to do is I used to come back from, I used to be, if you remember Viper and Jester and Top Gun, they were the the hostile guys, weren't they? They were in the four Skyhawks. That was my job on the squadron. I used to go up there and I used to have students turn in from seven miles as a pair and I used to have to fight them and I used to have to watch what they were doing over my shoulder when we're upside down and we're turning around and and all this I stopped flying October last year by the way because I'm leaving the service now but that was my job and I used to come down sometimes from these trips when I knew some of the students had been struggling. And the first thing I would do in the debrief that I'd run would say, I'd make up an error that I'd made. I'd make up something. I'd say, guys, I forgot to check my fuel. And I, when you called this fuel level, I hadn't checked my fuel. It wasn't true. Of course it wasn't. But I would say that because I wanted them to be able to be honest and open in the debrief as well, knowing that they'd failed in some aspects of the sortie, yep. And they could see then that there was someone above them who's 20 years more senior. And that person was able to embrace failure. Yeah. So the problem that we do have sometimes in these industries is some of these senior people don't do that. Right. They don't allow it because they don't do it themselves. They hide this and that promotes bad practice. Okay. And we don't promote bad practice when we're flying 30 million pounds of taxpayers' money.
0: (laughs) Does blame exist within... The Air Force and blame is a toxic issue through veterinary medicine. I'm yeah. sure it is through medicine yeah. as well Yeah, yeah, it is medicine definitely Where, yeah. uh, which uh, no, no, the root cause from what I've seen is poor leadership at the top What does blame, what does blame
3: achieve when you blame someone It makes you feel better, yeah. but makes everyone else feel and better. it's great Isn't it when you can point to someone and say it was him. It's like going back to when we were seven Right, you can say it was him. It wasn't me. It was him now. It doesn't happen in the military. It yeah. doesn't because I'm interested in him doing well or her doing well. Yeah. I don't want to blame her for something. I want to help her not do what's happened before, understand why it's happened. Right. So we, we have a just culture, yep. we call it. We uh, talk about mistakes. We talk about errors. The Most of the errors or mistakes, most of the things that happened that you'd say were bad or or whatever it might be, or, or mistakes, or things that you blame people for, happen for organisational gain, not individual gain. So, if someone, uh, I remember a sort I did last year, where I ran my fuel to the point where you know I landed with exactly the figure, but we should have a bit of a buffer, and I didn't. I remember the boss came and spoke to me, I was flying part time, and he said, you know, you're pushing that fuel now. Now, I can push that fuel, I can use all that fuel. I had to come back with a throttle idle and glide back into you know, that sort of stuff. But I did it because I wanted the sortie to be achievable. It was his sortie, by the way. It was the boss's sortie. He was learning as well. I needed to get that last run in. So that was an organizational game. So there's no, he would say, he'd recalibrate. Are you happy with what you're doing? Are you pushing it too much? Are you in too much in the office in, in the town I was in as opposed to you know, working part-time on the jet? you've got the balance right, but it's not a blame as such. It's just saying, it's an understanding because if you blame someone, you can't learn from that person. They're going to become defensive straight out. Absolutely. Whereas if you say to them, can we sit down and talk about why this happened? Yep. Then they go, oh yeah, you know what? I'm not doing great at home and the wife's going to leave me, whatever it is. Or I want to be a better vet and I think this is the way to do it. Or I want more money. And then you can address yep. those issues. So it's not a no blame culture. It's a just culture in service. We're a team of people and because of that, there's no point you blaming half a squadron for for doing something wrong you're on the same squadron you're identified by the people that you work with you know and i know that you are the same as the five people you spend the most time with yep. absolute fact negative people you'll become negative negative. positive people you'll become positive wealthy or, we know this so the squadron is more powerful as a whole than as an individual that's why we don't tend to go into the, the blame which is toxic Dr. Mia Sue Carey was my
0: guest in April, and as we sat in Vegas chatting over her life and her impact on veterinary medicine, we got to an interesting topic, and that was how fear can stop you making great decisions, in particular, ownership decisions, and why she thinks it would be a mistake to let fear talk you out of those big decisions. Let's hear from Mia. Boutique practice (laughs) can offer individualization. But boutique practice is under great threat at the minute. If you look at right. maybe in the because of the
4: column. lack of buying power,
0: lack of buying power, maybe lack of belief. So that's really interesting because and I have an email here from a graduate vet who's overseas, not in the US, but she's new graduate, and so we're talking about this cookie cutter bringing graduates into a cookie cutter model. So I've gone corporate and feeling a bit like I sold my soul. And she talks about having a hard to transition, being a new graduate, being thrown in a deep end with no helping. And she wants to, and here's the pertinent point, I want to be a practice owner one day and be a f- strong female leader in the veterinary industry, but I have doubts about if that is achievable due to the increasing corporate takeover. Should I be having ambitions of practice ownership if my generation of vets aren't going to be able to do that in the future?
4: Yes. Yes. Have those ambitions. So did you want to keep on your question? Well, the question then was,
0: so your, your point was, you know, access to funding. This is a internal belief that people are coming out of college with that they cannot compete with corporates. That world's disappearing. Now to your point of wanting to do, to create a customized experience and innovate a customized experience, we're heading in different directions there. So
4: So I think there's a lot of layers there, right? There's a lot of layers there. I think part of it is how we're educating and training. And there's so many issues that we know about, whether it's the well-being, where it's the debt load that these folks are being faced with when they graduate. So all of these things are real and we've got to get a handle on them. What I feel strongly about is that there is room for all the different models. And so there is absolutely room for the corporate and they do great things. The individual independent veterinarian, there is room for that and needed. And there are great things that they can do. And it's not just about being the boutique, having the customized service. It is about being smart and using technology. And at the end of the day, it's about figuring out what our pet owners want and delivering on that. And some of them do want something that a corporate practice could provide provide. Some of them don't. They want to have something that's the really intimate one-on-one with their veterinarian that they see day in and out. We ha- see a demand for telehealth increasing. We've got to get prepared for that. But to this individual that wrote the email, I would say, yes, have that ambition. And that's the key to it all, right? Is the self-awareness to know what is going to make you tick and thrive and then go down that path. And for everyone with a veterinary degree or in this space, it's going to look a little bit differently, but that's the beauty of this profession.
0: In episode 16, it was my pleasure to speak with the amazing Dr. Sheila Robertson from Lapa Love. Sheila, if you didn't know her, has got an abundance of letters after her name suggesting she is very smart indeed, and that's exactly how I found her to be. Not only smart, but super humble. In this little conversation, we talk about how fear impacts our decision-making, particularly when it comes to her twin loves of geriatrics and anesthesia. Enjoy.
5: I'm working now with Lap of Love. And so we have deal with older patients, but I've always been concerned about the, the geriatrics and the senior patients that used to come through my services for anesthesia, because a lot of them have problems. And the other thing is, I think as a profession, we've become very good at pediatric anesthesia, right? I think our success rate with spay and neuter in tiny, like, you know, what one kilo kittens and puppies yep. is really, really good. And like, if you look at the human equivalent, you know, like in America, for example, I just looked up all the statistics. there's one pediatrician for every eight hundred children, but there's only one geriatrician for every five thousand geriatric people in America. Wow So clearly we're facing the same issue in veterinary medicine. Animals are living longer, people are willing to do more treatments, preventative medicine is keeping them longer. So now these pets need to be anesthetized, like for their dental or, you know, they've got a mass on their spleen, but the owner's going to go for it because, you know, they're going to do fine and they shouldn't be, you know, too old to get their teeth done. So with aging, even if you age well, your vital capacity or your reserve capacity in every organ decreases. And so that's going to affect anesthesia. You have less surface area in your lungs. Your lungs are a little bit stiffer. Your heart's a little bit stiffer. You lose muscle mass, you know, sarcopenia, so you're not, you might need a bit more help with breathing. Those dogs or cats need a little help more. But the biggest thing for anesthesia is that brain mass and neurotransmitters decrease with time. And so in humans, they've known for ever that the MAC, so how much isoflurane or sevoflurane you need to stay asleep, drops off every decade. And that data has been validated in dogs. I haven't seen it in cats yet, but it's been done for sevoflurane and isofluorine in dogs. And one was in beagles at age two and they were in a longevity nutrition study, anesthetize them again when they're 10 or 12 and they need a lot less um, to keep them asleep. And so it's easy to overdose the older animals. And the other thing is they have a slower circulation time. So you want to inject a lot more slowly to let things get to the brain in the older pets. And then the other thing is just making sure, again, the hypothermia, because they have a different, they have less, you know, they have muscle wastage, you know, the skinny old animals, so they can't generate as much heat. Um, They lose a lot of muscle mass. So even warming up, shivering is a bigger deal for them and they take longer. So that and the other problem when they're under anesthesia is think about how many of them actually have underlying... Osteoarthritis that you're probably already treating. Yep. And then you put them on a really hard, uncomfortable surgical table and put them in a, in a position that they wouldn't an choose. Yeah. Right. Their elbows all stretched out. So often what I find, or used to find before I thought about it, was if they're in for an emergency hemoabdomen or something, their incision was fine the next day, but they were crippled. Right. Their back, their knees, their elbows hurt. So I'm, you know, a proponent of. Much better positioning, not tying animals down in crazy positions. Um, just like thinking about if that not was your stretching joint, out the
0: lumbo sacral joint in these old yeah. dogs. That one
5: well, thing, and yeah, and things like you know, stretching doing their a posture, yeah, stretching out yep. the arms, and you know, my answer's always been like it's not you know tying them down that stops them moving. It should be the anaesthesia that stops them moving. Um, <laughs> that makes sense. So, you know, why do we have to tie them down in these positions? And so I think, you know, developing better, you know, how they're positioned and, you know, really forgiving foam, uh, memory foam type stuff. And, you know, even thinking about when you're doing a PU in a cat, you know, do you pull their legs forward if they have Hippo age do you put their tail up? And we know that that's really bad for their lumbosacral junction. So we've got to get creative in sort of like neutral positioning uh, for all animals, but especially these geriatrics with their sore joints. And they may have to come off their non-steroidal. Yep. You know, a blocked cat or a acute, you know, hemangiosarcoma, hemoabdomen that's hypotensive is probably going to be taken off its non-steroidals for a couple of days. And so yep. we're in we've got a problem there.
0: Absolutely. Now the MAC, just to come back for us that for a second. So, you know, standard operating practice in a lot of clinics is, you know, crank them on to two liters of oxygen and two uh, percent isoflurane mm-hmm. and so what does the MAC reduce down to you know let's say we're doing a 14 year old dog it's a painful condition like a, a dental what should we be thinking what number should we be thinking for MAC in so, this dogs? So
5: we're talking about in the data that's published in dogs like it's at least a 25% drop right at least and obviously it's going to depend on what other drugs you have on mm-hmm. board but what it really comes down to, so 25 to 30 or higher percentage yep. lower on your vaporizer setting, yep. otherwise you're overdosing them yep. because they just don't have the neurotransmitters and the brain mass is, has gone down. So this all comes down to monitoring depth of anesthesia. So like your yep. nurses or whoever's running anesthesia, you know what they'll find is that if they check the jaw tone and they check reflexes and so on, and they keep turning the vaporizer down in these older dogs, They're like, still have a dog or a cat that's asleep, but the vaporizer's not way up where it is for a young, you know, rambunctious, like, Labrador that comes in for a neuter, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they just need to be checking the reflexes. And what they'll find is that, you know, as soon as they start being more, paying attention to depth of anesthesia and jaw tone and so on, you'll find that the dogs breathe better, their pressure's better, because you're using... Basically, you're giving them what they need and no more. And that's really the key to anesthesia is the monitoring.
0: Our June episode featured a slight direction change where we started focusing on our patients a little bit more and how fear affects cats and their trips to the vet. Also, how the fear in cats affects owner behavior when they're going into clinics. This was a great discussion and Susan gives some amazing tips in this little excerpt on how you can improve... The fear levels for cats visiting your practice?
6: I think we always need to evaluate our clinic procedures, really everything we do, from the cat's viewpoint. Yeah. Look at things from the cat's viewpoint. So this right. is a
0: little bit Temple Grandin sort of yeah,
7: for cat's Yeah, right? it
6: absolutely is. You know, one of the things that was a real game changer for me was a video that Sheila Robertson yes. did. Yes. The video, uh, what, it looks like from the cat's point of view. So it's a cat in a carrier going into the University of Florida at Gainesville. Yes. Yeah. And so like the video was shot from the point of view, like you're in the carrier. Right. Right. And so like getting stuffed into the carrier, getting put in the car, you know, the car ride, she did a really great job of this video and it just, and I went, wow, yeah. like that's what we need to Empathy see. Empathy exercise
0: with the Oh, cat.
6: totally. The, you know, I remember thinking, Wow, when you're in a cure, you see a lot of people's feet and, like, not much else. You know, you see, like, a lot of, like, lower legs of people. And if you're a cat, being able to have surveil your environment makes you feel safer. And now all of a sudden, all you can see is, like, feet. Yeah. It was just, that was a revelation for me.
0: Okay. What do you do in your clinics to minimize the stress, improve the handling? Having no cat. dogs
6: is really helpful. That's, the, you know, that's
0: one of the biggest challenges is the dog owner in yeah. the weight room. who says, yeah. no,
6: he's fine with cats. Yeah, yeah, right. And it's yeah. like, yeah, sure. Yeah. What about the cat? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and the exactly. cat just
0: totally freaked out. Yeah.
6: So one of the things that I've been doing a lot in the last year or two is um, clinic audits. So I'll go into, so clinics, you know, I, I don't just walk off the street and do this. Clinics invite me in. To walk in, and <laughs>
0: that would be terrifying, wouldn't it's it? Like, really, oh, she's just walked in Dr. the door. Susan Who is that little woman? <laughs> cat
6: just yeah, walked just in, just walked front in door. door. Uh oh, what's happening? <laughs> so, I'll, I'll do like a little audit, and my goal at the end, so I'll spend an hour or two there. And my goal at the end is to give them three things that don't cost any money that they can do today to make life better for cats in their
0: okay. practice. What are the common three things?
6: Put a, a cardboard box in the cat's cage, okay, so they have a place to hide. Yep. Right? Put something in their waiting area to get cats up off of the floor. Yep. Not just off of the floor, but above dog level. Yes. So they're above dog level. It might be a windowsill. You know, it might be a bench. It might be a table, whatever it is. Yep. Right? Right. Usually there's just like some piece of furniture they just have to move. Yes. Right? And get cats up off of the floor, yep. right? And then think of the reception desk as a danger zone.
0: Yeah. The right. reception
6: area cuz everybody walks up to that reception desk, you know, dog and cat owner are like and nobody's paying attention to the animals. Everybody's like talking to the reception staff, yep. right? Yes. And that's where like stuff happens.
0: Is it worth just getting the cats cuz it seems like the res- the reception area is the worst possible it place. And just get them straight in Moving an exam them right room. into an
6: exam room. So if you have an empty exam room, sometimes even just having the owner and the cat wait in the car you know? So I know some vets that have what they call like concierge service, right? Yes. So you'll wait in your car and then will a staff member will come out and help you like bring the cat in and whatever. Yep. So they're just waiting away. So, you know, I often hear people say, well, I can't divide my waiting room. Yep. You know, I, I can't like reconstruct my hospital now and divide my waiting room. Yeah. Well, no, you don't have to, you, you can use. the waiting room
0: outside yeah, in the car. Yeah. That's a really interesting insight. i never mm. thought about that.
6: Well, I didn't make it up, sadly.
0: That's okay. Well, you you see, you you could have gone with a white lie there. I could have, but, you know. None the wiser. No, I'd be discovered. (laughs) Okay, so... Avoid the reception desk. Yes, um, what, what else? think
6: about that as a danger zone. Get about, cats up off the
0: floor. What about in the exam room? In terms of getting yeah. you know, the physical exam, the clinical exam, a lot of my work and my research has been with doctors in the exam room and helping them with a structure, a process, to maximize their chances of following the right clinical pathway based on what they, they do in the exam room. What can we do better or differently to improve the quality of the information we derive from that exam room process and feel like medicine.
6: I think for cats, you have to learn to compromise. So if you've really, so if you, you have learned, because here's being all about processes again, right? Yep. So if you've learned a way to do a physical exam, a way to do your medical record, so that you don't forget things, you don't leave yes. things out, you have to adjust to the cat. Yep. So... It's become very popular for veterinarians to have an assistant in the exam room with them, you yep. know, whether it's a vet nurse or an assistant. Yes. And I think generally for cats that's a bad thing right the less people Too in the room people. the better yep. so i am not a fan for cats of the system where the vet nurse goes in first you know like maybe weighs the animal takes the medical history does yep. the, the tpr slides, all of that. this yep. and then the vet comes in and like does so every time a person enters the room that cat's you know stress clock goes up again and you're starting from zero again to yep Acclimatize. Yep. So uh, that's a hard part because especially a lot of corporate practices, right? They want things to be done the same way all the time. Yes. And I don't think you can treat dog exams and cat exams the same way. I think you need two different systems.
0: Okay. And in terms of the handling of the animal?
6: Less is more. Okay. Yeah, less is more.
0: What would a typical examination look like with Dr. Susan Little?
6: So we use lots of towels. Oh gosh, we've got tons of towels. And a, a colleague of mine... You know, one of the reasons I love coming to conferences like, like this is like, you learn things all the time,
0: right? Absolutely. So
6: a colleague of mine took that to the next level and she makes sure the towels are warm. Hmm. So, so she'll examine cats when they're kind of enveloped in a warm towel. Who yep. would not feel happier in a warm towel? Absolutely. I would be happier in a warm yeah. towel, you know? <laughs> so you, you learn you learn these things. So I will, I'm going to make
0: warm towels available for future podcast warm
6: guests. Warm towels. <laughs> It would be a nice little perk. It, would. it really would be. I've only
0: given you one. Yeah, i got a bottle of a water. I had to bring my own coffee. A, you, uh, oh.
6: <laughs> so, a warm towel. <laughs> welcoming. Very welcoming.
0: In July, I spoke with Dr. Cody Creelman, cow vet, who spoke personally, deeply, and passionately about his fear when he entered vet school of suddenly feeling lost, plus his antidotes to get him through phases where he felt like this. This is a great little excerpt. So, enjoy Dr. Cody Creelman.
8: So when I got that letter, I bawled like a baby. Like I was full (laughs) streaming, crying. Like when I talk about it, I well up thinking. I full on cried like a baby. When I walked into that school, I thought I was in Hogwarts. Like I thought that this was where wizards were made, that I had left behind the muggles and (laughs) I was going to be a wizard. And like my school was not like the nicest looking school. It was built in the 60s. It's just bricks. It's not a spectacular castle. Right. But this was Hogwarts. Hogwarts to me. This was a place of absolute magic when I started walking through those halls. But when I got in, I instantly felt lost. Okay, I was so incredibly lost because what I had realized is my goal had been mutated and turned into this monster of my only goal being wanting to get into vet school. It wasn't to become a veterinarian. Right and now I had done that. Right. I had done that, that thing, and I had now no goal in life. My goal wasn't anything past getting into vet school, and I need that goal in my life. I need something like that. I need that, like burning desire, that feeling in my stomach, that time's fleeting away. And I didn't have that after first year.
0: How did that manifest? So I, what you're saying there really does chime with me. And, and I was having another conversation recently where yeah, I remember clearly I had a, a bottle of the cheapest, most awful Asti Spumante, like, martini wine which I think I'd probably, like, stolen or secreted away from my parents' alcohol stash or it was it was a Christmas gift that nobody wanted to touch but to me this was the best vintage champagne you could imagine and I had it on my second shelf from the top in my, my bedroom at school and I'm like, when I get into vet school I'm going to open that champagne and I'm going to drink that and of course, you know, like... I'm, 15, 16. It was 13 when I actually decided I wanted to go to vet school. So, you know, this is like I've had this, it's like this four years I've had this bottle of awful wine, which I know, and I was, i would imagined this big party and all these things, none of which happened whenever I got in there. But I, what you just said there really resonated was, what was the next goal there? You yeah, know?
8: that was the big question, right? What was driving me to do all of that work, and I figured it out in the end. Right, but I needed that thing—that thing that's going to make me not go to that dinner. That thing that's going to keep me studying that extra hour. Right, I, that feeling—that feeling that I feeling that thrived on through undergrad. I needed that.
0: Do you have a process via which that either you, you know, you found a new purpose because you do a lot of stuff, or? if not then, have you found a way of of establishing a direction and a purpose that you find reliable now? Well, my method is
8: really just digging deep in those times that I'm feeling that way. So within vet school, all I did was dug really deep and really self-reflected a lot and just thought really hard on that problem. And I usually try to come up with a solution that's the simplest at the time. So with a lot of self-reflection, trying to tweak that self-awareness as best as I can and come up with the most simple solution. So, so my solution in vet school, it sounds super silly, but it was become the best possible vet student that I could be. And that didn't mean like get the best marks. Like that wasn't my goal, but it was to have the best possible vet student experience that I could, that I was going to go to rounds. I was going to create networks. I was going to create real relationships with professors. I was going to have that experience as best as I possibly could.
0: How did you go about creating those networks and forming those relationships? So if there are any vet students listening, um, or people who struggle with networking generally, what things worked for you and what things did not work for you?
8: Yeah, so my biggest thing was just showing up, just showing up for
0: everything, right? Between mean physically or just mentally? or, oh, or
8: both, 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 absolutely. So my school did this thing, they did Monday through Thursday rounds, large animal rounds where anybody could show up at 8 a.m., and the professors would grill the the interns and the residents. And it was open to the entire school, but there was such a small handful of students that went down to rounds. But just by showing up, you got that FaceTime, that recognition from your props, from, from the interns. And I did that for years. I was one of the very few students that did it just over and over again. And it was so amazing because just that recognition and just those small conversations, being there, being engaged, asking questions, propelled my final year to such an extreme level. Because I was getting asked to do things that nobody else was getting asked to do. I was euthanizing horses off the needle in the breezeway as a student because they had trusted me. I was getting called out of class by our Scottish cow professor to go look at a cow that has lymphosarcoma. <laughs> like, but that would have never happened if I didn't just put in that work. I roamed. The the hallways and the breezeways, like I was a ghost. Every lunch, every day after school, every time that I was there studying and needed a break, I was spending time in those clinics, just creating that FaceTime over and over and over again.
0: Nancy Schlesinger, the legend that is the woman spoke to me in August and we talked about one of the biggest fears of all, that is the fear of having the difficult conversations in life. And as always with Nancy, you're going to get two things, a wonderfully posh and lovely accent to listen to, but advice that just makes these hard conversations seem like they're the easiest things in the world. If you've never heard Nancy before, you're going to love this clip. Enjoy.
9: I remember a guy I worked with years ago. Now he was going to be fired unless he changed his behaviour. (laughs) He, <laughs> he'd he thrown a laptop across the room in a meeting with a client, at the client. And he'd had a bit of an argument with a, a door and the door hadn't come off terribly well. And this client asked me, you know, right, we need to... To turn this guy around, or well, basically, they'd fired him, but it turns out that you can't do that in France. You have to give a person some help and then fire them if they still don't do what they're supposed to do. So, would I go overdo this coaching? And then they'd probably fire him in three months' time anyway. And this guy was like the size of a, a sort of large rugby player. And could I just meet him in this hotel <laughs> on my own? And so I did. And actually, he was really nice really lovely guy and he basically was saying, Well, I I can't learn anything new. I I know how I do everything and that's how I do it and I mean he was a terrible bully. He treated lots of people really badly. He's really sarcastic. And so I said to him, Well, the thing is, if you do not learn some new ways of behaving, you're gonna be fired in three months. That's all there is to it. Well I can't change, he said. "I, I can't do it. And I said, Well okay, let's let's just look at this. You speak English, French, German, Spanish, Italian Greek, you taught yourself um, Sanskrit and you have a degree in astrophysics and you're telling me you can't learn.
0: <laughs> Touché.
9: <laughs> sort of grudgingly accepted what I said. And and then I said, well, okay, let's look at how you taught yourself Sanskrit and then we'll learn this stuff in that same way. And that's what we did. And he turned around, he became a model person what did you do?
0: like how did he learn his languages then and how did you put that to work? How did you adapt that into a framework that he could then model or, or use within the new context of learning you were teaching him?
9: Well, basically he just like tried stuff out and if it worked, then he did it. So we just got some things for him to try and he'd come back the next week and go, "Well, that worked. <laughs> Because I always say to people when I'm coaching, and you'll probably remember this, my responsibility is to find stuff for you to try. Your responsibility is just to try. If it doesn't work, that's not your responsibility. That's my responsibility. And most of the time what happened, Dave, it worked, didn't it? Most of the time it worked, yes. Yeah. And you'd be a bit surprised, just like him. Well, well it worked. Yeah. And yeah. So they said, say, right, let's try something else then.
0: So the was it the... The training of the company that was failing that guy rather than he was a bad fit or
9: it was a lot of things i mean when you've got someone who bullies people yeah um what's often happened is that no one has ever said dave this isn't really a very nice way to treat people there's actually a much better way to do this that will get you the results you want much more easily and won't be as unpleasant for everyone else and the person who's doing it just doesn't realise there are other ways to do it. They often don't realise how offensive their behaviour is. I mean, this guy, he was very, very sarcastic. Now, the trouble is, I love sarcasm. It's one of my favourite things. To me, it's like jousting or, you know, sword fighting. I absolutely love it. But I know most people don't like it. Now, the reason I love it, of course, is because I'm quite good at it. And when you're good at it, It's just really, really good fun. So it's just not good fun when you're on the receiving end and you don't know how to deal with it. Right. And as I explained to him and to many others I've dealt with on this, James Bond, when he's, you know, doing his sword fighting and stuff, he never goes for someone who doesn't have their sword in their hand. And when the baddie drops their sword, he almost always picks it up and hands it back to them. And that's what you have to do with sarcasm. You only ever do it with someone who's got their own sword in their hand and can use it. And this guy was a master of sarcasm. His boss was terrified of him. Other members of staff were terrified of him. He was just really aggressive and unpleasant. But I suspect that nobody had ever said to him, there are other ways of doing this. And this behaviour is really, really offensive, including his parents and his teachers. He'd been allowed to believe that that behaviour was perfectly acceptable until he met me. (laughs) And then I had to show him some other ways. But, you know, there are ways of doing this. I, I remember, I mean, with this guy, this is what I almost always do when I'm working with a a really difficult case, is I say, well, let's just meet for lunch and just see if we can get on and, and you know, if, if this might work. And that's when I do most of my work over lunch, because they're relaxed. They don't realise we're actually doing anything. If there is a problem, well, I'll just knock over my wine glass or something and and that will be really embarrassing and I'll look an idiot and they'll just laugh and it won't be a problem. So I know you know, whatever happens, I can kind of get out of the situation or retrieve everyone's dignity quite easily. And we can just deal with a lot of tricky things.
0: In September, the tables were turned as the University of Queensland veterinary students turned the mic on me. And amongst other things, they asked me about my approach and my advice to students who were studying hard for exams. And, and indeed, exam fear, exam stress is a huge thing for students. Not just now, always has been. But I had this advice to offer students. In the real world, exams don't seem to matter too much. So slightly weirdly, I'm introducing me <laughs> to talk more from me. There you go. Have some of me. Well, I think I I was typical in some ways and very not typical in other ways. You know, I was typical in the way, particularly at Glasgow, since, you know, it's, uh, I think the, actually, when I was in Australia, I heard of there's a little town called Brookline just outside of Sydney, and they call it a fishing town with a drinking problem. (laughs) And I, I would say much the same is true of Glasgow Vet School. It's kind of a, you know, it's it's a drinking institution with a veterinary medicine problem. And what that means, I don't mean to glorify um, booze, but what it, it is, is a place where there's a lot of living done as well. And so I treated, you know, getting into university was obviously quite challenging, quite hard. And a lot of us have that as a very clear objective early in our, our lives, right? Like we want to be vets, we whatever inspires us, whether it's James Herriot or just a love of animals or love of science or whatever we've got this really clear fixed goal and that's to get through vet school or get into vet school and then get out the other side so you know it's it's a wonderful thing to achieve that but my aim when I got to vet school you know I actually I went to a very good school I was never one of those vets who or one of those students who was ever top of the class even at school like there was people far, far smarter than me. They're, the world is po- populated by lots of people way smarter than than Dave Nichol for sure. But I feel like in the game of Top Trumps, like there was lots of people who were like a ten. You know, do you know the game Top Trumps? You know, they're like brain power one hundred. You know, and I'm probably brain power fifty five. But you know, energy one hundred and twenty, and you know, a- ability to see see solutions to problems was pretty high as well. So. I was able to enjoy the social side of university a lot and that was I think that was very important and and I actually I didn't so much aim for 50. I was always, you know, I, I would like to get more than 50. It just didn't happen that often, you know. <laughs> you know, in my in my third year, I went well in the the odd years of vet school I didn't have any pass fail orals, which was nice. In the even years I didn't go so well and for some reason like I picked up pass fail orals but i never failed a pass fail oral so i didn't have any specials or, or repeat years which which was good because that would have driven me completely insane i wasn't shooting for 50% because if i'd have shot for 50% i would have got 29 but i was kind of pissed off if i would get 51% and the the group of guys i would hang out with we were like you know if we got 51% we were pissed off because we did 1% too much study and 1% too little living and I, honestly I, like so i'm not advocating that to all vet students on planet earth i I don't suggest you sail quite that close to the wind, but what I would say is that this notion that you should always try and be top and that, and that you should be perfect to everything is so destructive to your mental well-being and your happiness that I hope that I could give you permission to let it go and to tell you from the other side of the fence you know, from, it's uh, maybe two weeks past the 20 years since my graduation. I know what you're thinking, you know, wow, like there must never be sunshine there because you look so young and vital. <laughs> <laughs> all right, please, please do not answer that. But he says, with all the gray hair of running veterinary practices, they, these hairs are earned that color, right? I'm proud of them. So, but from the other side, if that doesn't sound like I'm too much of a, a medium, <laughs> I'm talking to you from the, the other side. No one gives a shit if you got a merit or a distinction, you know, not really, honestly, I do not even look at that on a CV. In fact, if you're going to walk into my hospital and be bragging about that, I would count that as a mark against you because it's already telling me you have an ego issue. In October, my guest was Dr. Roland Wessels, who had some very interesting insights into one of the most insidious fears in our industry, and that's the fear of not being perfect. Perfectionism is, of course, rampant within veterinary circles, and Roland has this sagely advice on the matter, particularly aimed at the next generation of vets. His take? Is perfectionism possible, or is it just setting yourself up for inevitable failure? Let's hear from Roland
10: i think it's not only in our profession i think it's it's more in nowadays society i see it in my daughter i see it in my son i think because everything is now in the open due to social media everything everybody has an opinion on everything on everybody and everything has to be perfect because every photo has to look perfect great filter super yeah filter 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 i see it in my children i see it in nowadays society i see it more in women than in men that they really want to be the perfect wife the perfect mother the perfect friend the perfect everything personally i think that is the reason behind that is that their mothers told them um, because the nowadays generation has mothers who try to be independent and these mothers have told their daughters always be independent you're as good as a man uh, go to the university get your degree and uh, make sure you're always independent you make your own amount of money you make it so this this more or less that's only my theory it's not proven um is the seed in their brain to be the perfect daughter and the perfect and it also um, uh, applies for for men by the way uh, and i think that's nowadays society you know it's there's no time for being imperfect anymore
0: So what's the impact of that within the veterinary frame? It certainly makes a lot of sense to have, and I see it and it's very hard not to get drawn into that as well because I am on Instagram and you know we've been photoshopping things and choosing our best photos i, to I show see to you now for, f- decades.
10: for the first time in real life and i'm <laughs>
7: ugly as butt right <laughs> <laughs>
0: thank you ron
10: and uh, i will not tell the uh, the listeners that there is a difference between the photos and the real david nichol
0: yeah right? I'm, I'm not really six no. foot four no. like no. handsome at all i'm don't, I'm tell, them, don't, tell, them. No, don't tell them they're five foot seven ugly fellow No, but
10: don't you agree with that, that this happens and they want to be perfect? And you can't be perfect when you graduated from vet school, you know. My first cesarean, it took me two and a half hours. And as a matter of fact, I cut myself. I I still have the scar, you know, but I was so concentrated. I was full of adrenaline. And then after two and a half hours, you know, when everything was closed up and everything was clean, the farmer said to me, you're bleeding yourself. (laughs) (laughs)
0: You could have nearly fallen on the floor like I've lost a pint of blood.
10: I I hadn't felt no pain at all because I'm absolutely sure that I cut myself in the beginning. Yeah. So I had been bleeding there for two and and a half hours. (laughs) Yeah. So no, this was not a perfect cesarean, but I learned a lot. Um, So I think that probably on university, um, the role models of these students nowadays are specialists, veterinary specialists, and they're very good. They're very good in this small piece where they really the master in. But to be honest, um, I think our students also need role models of general practitioners, you know, because you do everything. And and by having the specialist as a role model, as a golden standard, that they have to at least perform as good as a specialist. I think something goes wrong in their brain. They think they have to do, you know, they have to find everything on on the first diagnose. You know, I'm I'm 25 years in the job now and I still, still, it takes me sometimes two consultations to get really the diagnose right. It takes time. These things take time. And I think they suffer from that. And I feel sorry for them because that's one of the remarks I like to make. Uh, you say that uh, I work with students and I think it's the most wonderful thing to do. I love to do that. I'm, I feel so honored and so happy. And so I feel great that I was given a chance to help my fellow colleagues for the future because they can learn from what I did wrong
0: you touched on a few other things there, I think. And actually, this almost circles back to the advice you got from your professor, which was you're going to Africa, rolling, slow down, slow down. Don't be so, you're going to hit a wall there and nothing moves that fast. The compression of time is a noticeable change or, or feature of modern life from when I graduated, it would be a week to get back your pathology results if you sent them to the external laboratory to now it's the following day or same day the instant gratification that's now available, you know, I remember when the internet came along, I was having this conversation with someone last night, the internet, when it came along to download a photograph on the internet, it would download line by line and yeah, you would yeah, build yeah, it yeah. up and it, it would take, I right. This, yeah, the yeah, dial up yeah. modem. And you could wait for 10, 15, 20 minutes, but it was still amazing that this thing would appear at all. Whereas now if a web page doesn't download in two seconds, you're gone. And so we are, hitting all these micro Insta hit or Facebook dopamine hits, chasing around that gratification moment and looking for the likes to tell us we're amazing, give us that external validation. It looks like being a very strong drug. Because uh, if I
10: look at myself, you know, you you you're just sucked into it and you become part of it. Look at my life, you know. Um, yesterday I flew to uh, Barcelona, was there. You you book in, in in the next flight to Brighton, then to Amsterdam. You know, it facilitates also in in leading a fast life, yeah. in, in in having a, a fast life. You, there there is no time in between that you have to wait, and I think waiting is very good being bored i had i don't know how how about you but i had my best ideas when i was bored oh yeah when i walk in the in the woods with my dog and i just then all of a sudden my best ideas pop up
0: in november we had the ever amusing massively entertaining storyteller that is Bash Hallow. But Bash isn't just a storyteller. He's also a sedgely chap and has some excellent advice to share, in particular on social media. So we spoke about how the fear of the digital edifice, as I call it, this enormous, overwhelming thing that is digital marketing is inhibiting the growth of practices and how how it is causing us a problem by us not being part of that conversation as much as we should. Let's hear from bash
7: I was uh, really had an aha moment about I don't know maybe six months ago. I get on this plane, and this woman kind of you know she she scoots herself in front of me and she plops herself down next to the seat, um, uh, uh, next to me, and she takes this cellophane thingy maboob out that she clearly bought at the gift store, and she it has like this peel sticker thing, and she sticks it against the back of the chair. It's a Velcro device, whatever. And then she takes her cell phone and she sticks it in the Velcro device. So this is a device that will. Is meant to stick to the back of airline chairs so that you could put your cell phone up there. So then she proceeds to stick her earphones in there and she hooks up and she rifles through a couple of baby pictures. And then she, she, she sits back and she begins to watch a movie on her cell phone. And I thought, my God, what a long road to this house of, I just want to entertain myself with a movie. And then I look around and the entire plane is looking at movies. And I think to myself, what is it about our affinity for a story like why are we all so wrapped up in movies but I will tell you that the more you know so I always ask this question um, um, when we talk about the value of of client education and I always ask the staff more client education equals more compliance true or false and they invariably have this knee-jerk reaction of it's true and I was like, really? Is that, that's really your experience. You went into the room and you said, you know, according to the latest AHA statistics, this vaccine, you really did that? That really improved the compliance? And they think about it, and invariably there'll be somebody who's really doing some thoughtfulness, and they'll say, no, I tell them a story. Right. And so, stories, I mean, that's a long road for me to tell you the, the value of yeah. stories, but yeah. I honestly believe that there is a thing that in, I just, I'm sorry I'm so passionate about this idea but I regularly used to think that the only people that could sell stuff in practices were the extroverted salesmen right yeah. but that's not true introverted people can sell just as well as extroverts right. I also used to think that I had to teach you what to say yeah. so that we could be better salesmen yeah. and that's also been a dead end road yeah. for me right that yeah. only you can give them some you can you can improve performance slightly but what really counts is people believe in the value of it yeah. and they tell their story they tell the the story of how they've come to believe in yes. that product or service and that's what wins people over. So the great thing about social media is that it's an opportunity to tell stories. We were talking about this yesterday. I typically have low success rate with a, with a clinical discussion about something. So there's a flu outbreak and we talk yeah. about what canine flu is yeah. or a distemper thing. Yeah. And to me, it, it, my experience is that that sort of gets a temp uh, you know, uh, that, that's a very modest interest from my audience. You tell a story about how Doc Gittleman got Lyme disease, and yeah. it blows up the web. Absolutely. You know, so yeah. personal stories really matter for practices, and that's what they should be telling. We've, we've, we've evolved in this way from when, you know, tribal elders were the earliest form
0: of the internet. Or, you know, just information storage in one form or another w- was in the form of storytelling and passing it from generation to generation like before books even existed then libraries now the internet so we're, we're hardwired to hear a story aren't we I mean that makes perfect sense to me if I think about what I do in the exam room that's different to other people sure there are elements that you have to go through but it's always with the stories that you can tell of your you know it's it's dust off your you know, your warrior wings and tell the story of the time where you had these challenges problems or what this product fixed or the impact it had on on patients make it real
7: yeah and you know what else i think is important is i think that you don't have to come to you know your facebook post with all the answers all you can do all you have to do really is introduce the conversation yeah right and i've also had a lot of luck saying you know well this is what we think what do you think about this like we wrote this one post about it was a post for a practice in new york city and it was how to train your cat to use the toilet yeah right so we have all the products and this is what we do this is what we think that works but what did you do? Did you ever try it? Yeah, And I think that's also really great. That's also something that really, uh, I think, bonds clients to practices or gives clients another opportunity to bond to the people they're in, is to invite them into a conversation online. Yeah. So folks, that is it for another year.
0: 11 amazing guests. I can't believe how quick it's gone. Just a few thank yous. I mean, first of all, thank you. To all of the guests who've given so generously with their time uh, to effectively educate me in one-on-one continuing education sessions uh, where I bring a mic along and I hope by doing that it allows you some insight into these amazing personalities from the world of veterinary medicine and also access to their brains, their thinking. So my hope is that the podcast has deepened your relationship with your fellow peers, offered you inspiration, not just crumbs of it, but pathways, nuggets of advice, things you can start to see, the strands you can start to tease together of what success looks like for these people, but also the principles upon which their success was built. And of course, I hope that you also got entertainment into the mix as well. It's been an absolute pleasure for me to meet all of my guests and spend this time doing this podcast. It's one of the things I enjoy doing the most in my day-to-day job. And of course, my biggest thanks of all, or my last thanks of all, has to go to you, the listeners. You have listened in the tens of thousands this year, It is a privilege. I do not take your listenership for granted and I will continue to keep putting out work of the best quality I can. Please send in your suggestions for guests you would like to hear from in 2019. It is my full intention to keep going with this. The feedback is amazing and and not just from you, the guests seem to enjoy it as well. So please be safe, be well, be happy. I hope you had an amazing 2018. And even if 2018 was a tough year for you, do not worry, guess what, this too will pass. And if you've had a great year, then don't rest on your laurels, because again, that too could pass as well. Arm yourself with the thought that life is a contact sport. Success has no single definition, it is something different for everybody. And most of all, do not let fear stop you from doing something that you really are on this planet to do. Have a great Christmas, have an amazing new year, And I will see you again with another episode of Blunt Dissection in January. Take care, guys.